So during Ordinary Time this year, we've been studying the Minor Prophets, and today brings us to the second part of Nahum. And you remember last week as we were getting into this that um, the, the historical reality here is kind of big, bad Assyria on the one hand, and they were big and they were bad. And then little oppressed Israel. And we've been looking at it from a formational point of view that, that sees a particular spiritual challenge in this. And that is that the in vogue powers of any given day will distract us from what's really going on at the center of life through the person and actions of God who moves through quietness and prayer. So I think you can feel this. I mean, just feel the headlines. And then against that, feel the thought of a God who moves through quietness and prayer. Uh, I said to you last week, I think this is a, a marvelous idea that Eugene Peterson wrote in his um, introduction to Nahum, that if we're conditioned to respond to noise and size, then we will miss God's word and God's action. So to the degree that our hearts and minds and souls, you know, our, our beings are bent towards the might that makes right in society, which is noise and size, to the degree that we're bent or our ears are tuned in that direction, then we miss out on what's really happening at the center of human life, which happens in quietness and prayer. And this is why, um, as Cindy was just helping us sing, and as Beth said as we started, we, we so try to cultivate in this space something that's different than our bent often outside of a space like this so that we can begin to just gently bend ourselves in a different direction. So these two readings this morning are, are tied together, I think, in at least one way that we can look at in a, in a brief moment of time. And that is that God's judgment and mercy are always the active elements working at the center of the world. Like, it's one thing to say God's working at the center of the world. It's another thing to ask, you know, like, well, kind of mainly what's he up to? And what he's mainly up to is judgment and mercy. And that is to say, dealing with evil on the one hand and restoring human creation on the other. So we see this, if you look at your text this morning, where God says straight out, Assyria, I'm your enemy. And then you, you have this phrase that shows up often in the Hebrew text, declares the Lord Almighty. Meaning, you know, this is a straightforward statement of there is somebody who's ruling the world and it's not you, Assyria, and the one who is the Lord Almighty I am your enemy, and that is to say, I am finally dealing with and defeating this evil power. So the history really is that it's the Medes and Babylonians who finally were able to knock Assyria you know, off their long-standing throne. But what Nahum's doing is helping us to see that while that may have been the historical, you know, sort of brutal physical fact, that it was actually God's means of involvement in human history. 
And though it's quiet and unseen and the noise is all happening kind of out there on the battlefield, that God is actually protecting his plan. And so if you look down your text where he says to them, nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. Um, What's going on here is remember when we studied Jonah. Jonah went to Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Jonah went to Nineveh, preached to them, and remember what the text said? Surprisingly, they repented. So now we're a generation or two or three down the line here, and as the proverb says, they've, like a dog goes back to its vomit, these guys have gone back to their old ways of behaving. So much so, so committed to these ways of behaving that God says of them, nothing can heal you. And this is important for us because it alerts us to an important spiritual notion that it's possible to be past the point of no return. Now we have to say something, I think, careful theologically here. It's not that God won't let change happen. It's that apparently both governments and peoples can get so far gone that they no longer have the capacity to want to be different. They lose the capacity for another sense of what it means to be human, another sense of what it means to be a power in the world, a a nation, a president, a Supreme Court justice, a governor, a mayor. They lose any sense, it's gone. They lose any will to want to be different. And so in a sense, it's God just, as Paul said in Romans, handing them over to something that they're determined to have. So the notion here is, Assyria, you are so far gone that you can't even want to return. And then God then kind of releases or expresses his judgment or his justice. And I want to help you think about this again this morning too, that that justice and judgment is actually a statement that you matter. That human beings are actually what God's up to and they matter. And what they do or don't do matters. And that they are at the core of God's activity. They're at the core of God's project. And that what human beings do makes a great difference. And this means something. It means not least that all behaviors actually matter. And they all have consequences. And I don't mean that in some moralistic way, like, you know, if you're not home by 10, you know, you're grounded. I don't mean that. I mean the things that we do and say have affect. They impact others, and they are either in continuity with or discontinuity with what God's up to on the earth. And so if you begin to think of it that way, it actually, it, it makes sense And I think it it has the potential to bring us back to something like, you know, we've got aspects in our society, right, who who seem to really care about, you know, kind of moralisms and, you know, the current moralisms of the day, whether it's legalized marijuana or abortion or gay rights issues or, you know, whatever happens to be in the newspaper on any given day. And there's a lot of people who seem to really care about that. And they see wrongness in all that. And you might say it can even become judgmental. 
And then there are others who, who seem to say, well, gosh, none of that seems to matter at all. Who cares? Maybe sort of a libertarian viewpoint that says, you know, whatever, just let it go. But we really care about these systemic issues. Don't really care that much about personal morals, but we care a lot about big corporations. Or we care a lot about the Supreme Court. Are you feeling me here? And here's what's real. We're all picking and choosing. All of us are picking and choosing our issues. And sometimes that's the best we can do. We're fallible human beings. But what this says is that all human behavior matters. And that at some point, God will sort all this out. Thank God, because I can't sort it all out. I don't know, maybe some of you have the moral genius to sort it all out. I apparently lack the moral genius to sort it all out. But this says it won't go on forever. That someday God will sort this all out. So that Assyria, while obviously a real historical force on the earth, stands also as a type. And it's a type of the most awesome, cruel, evil regime imaginable. And but what Nahum wants to say is, while that's true, it's no match for the sovereign power of God and that evil will ultimately be defeated by God. And, and this, now I'm, I know I'm switching into New Testament Pauline thought, but you can go there with me. Just think of all Paul's language about the defeat of the powers. And, you know, um, how Paul sees Jesus through the cross and the resurrection beginning to put the world to rights. Well, that's just kind of the, fl the full flower of this seed of thing that Nahum's talking about. So what's real is this. Um, see if you can think of it this way. The spirit of Nineveh. Can you kind of feel that? The spirit of Nineveh and the city of God, to put it in Augustine terms, or the, the project of God, still exist in the world. And that a core aspect of following Jesus is to seek the city of God. Because it, it's both all out there. It's all over our calendars. It's all over our checkbooks. It's all over our neighborhoods. It's all over everywhere. And so core to Jesus was, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I mean, that is just core to following Jesus. Where can I find the kingdom in politics? Where can I find the kingdom in economic justice? Where can I find the kingdom in our education system? Where's the kingdom in our uh, healthcare system? This is what Jesus is saying. Find where God is moving and move with him there. And then secondly, it's not that God is just gonna judge evil, but he's going to restore his people and his project because restoring his people is restoring his project because people from Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to the people under the brutal tyranny of Assyria are his people and they're core to what he's doing on earth. And so if you look at your text, there's this odd phrase that says, He's going to restore the splendor, or one translation, the excellence of, of Israel. Well, the Hebrew word there means to like to elevate or to exalt them. And you know, modern peoples could wonder, is this just rank racism? Or let's ask it differently, why isn't this just rank racism? 
How is it that God can just, you know, choose Israel and, and want to lift them up? And I don't expect you to remember, but we spent a lot of time talking about this when we studied Genesis. And I spent a lot of time trying to explain to you the doctrine or the logic of election. And the logic of election isn't into some sort of syrupy favoritism. The logic of election is the one is chosen for the benefit of the many. Adam and Eve, come help me rule and reign over my creation. Noah, the world's gone crazy. I'm choosing you and your family for the sake of a future for humanity. Are you feeling me here? Abraham, you are blessed to be a blessing. And the story goes on and on and on and on from there. And so this is what God is restoring. And so when we see in our gospel reading this morning, two things in Jesus, he's teaching and he's sending. This is core. Again, if you, this is kind of like the flower of, of the ancient seed again. This is Jesus now, this is now the, the beginning of the end of God's big project. And so we, teach him, we see him teaching in the synagogue and teaching among the villages. And this is a part of the restoration project. Now I want us to stop and think about this for a moment. Why did Jesus teach? And if you look at each gospel, each of the, of the synoptics and John, you see him I didn't count them up, but I want to say off the top of my head, eight, ten times in each gospel, you see this phrase of, of that Jesus was teaching. Well, why did he teach? Now, I want to talk especially to all of you who have spent some time recently sort of deconstructing your evangelical past. If, if you, I actually did this yesterday. I Googled, why did Jesus die? And here's the answer you find everywhere to shed his blood to pay for our sins. Okay, I get it, fair enough, as far as it goes. But then I want to say, but why did he teach then? Why was this so core to his ministry? What the heck did teaching have to do with forgiving you because you smoked dope in junior high school? Or, you know, you slept with your boyfriend in college. Like, so why is he teaching and why did he teach the things he taught? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the parables. Think of the Olivet Discourse. Think of the conversations in John's Gospel. Why did he teach the things he taught? What's he up to? Because saving people from their sins does not just mean going to heaven when you die. It means being released from the places where our hearts are misbent today so that they can be bent in a different direction. And God in his wisdom knew that core to that was a certain explanation. The certain things needed to be instructed. They needed to be explained. And so Jesus in his teaching is interpreting uh, history and current events in the light of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He's casting vision. He's giving a basis for people to follow him. He's reorienting them so that they could repent. You might say that, that Jesus' teaching had kind of three aspects to it. One was just straightforward instruction. He just taught. But he also prophesied. Meaning he, as he taught, he showed people, this is what God's doing, but this is the way you're living. It's out of alignment with it. And in that sense, he was standing in the same line as Nahum. That's why people said of him, he's a prophet. He taught just like prophets taught. And so he sometimes just explained things. Other times he was sort of confronting, showing people what's real. And then he evangelized, come follow me. That was sort of Jesus's basic teaching outline. Here's what's going on. 
Here's how you're lining up with it or not. Come follow me. And so this is right at the core of everything that God was doing in Jesus. And when people heard him, the text says, they asked the question, we've never heard anybody teach like this with this kind of authority. Where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom that's been given to him? I love the way Eugene gets this in the message, but in the next breath, they're cutting him down, saying, ah, he's just a carpenter. We know who this is. This is Mary's boy. Do you hear what's going on there? Merely. This is Mary's boy. We've known him since he was a kid. We know his brothers and sisters. Who does he think he is? That really is what's underneath the text. Who does he think he is? And I've said this to you before, but it bears repeating in this context. This is what Jesus meant when he asked the rhetorical question, do you have ears to hear? This is a group of people who they did not have ears to hear. They had ears to manage him by knowing his family origin. Oh, we can put him in his place. That's just Mary's kid. We know his mothers and we know his brothers and sisters. He's nothing. Who does he think he is? So they didn't have ears to hear. They had ears to put him in his place. The Greek text says they were actually scandalized by him. They, they took offense at him. That is to say, they tripped over what little they knew about him and fell sprawling and never got any farther, just like Assyria. For some of them, their hearts were turned so far away that they couldn't even want to know what was true about him. And again, this is the human drama that plays out all day, every day, every day, again, on our phones and our checkbooks and our calendars and all the ways that make us human. The human drama is, again, the spirit of Nineveh versus the spirit of the city of God or the kingdom of God. And it just gets played out over and over and over again. Well, then the text in our gospel tells us that Jesus sends them out, sends them out with authority over unclean spirits and to heal. And again, this is, this is the ongoing inbreaking of the kingdom of God, restoring humanity. So when it says he gave them authority, it's the Greek word exousia, and it, it means that Jesus was delegating or conferring upon them power in his name or authorization in his name to act. And it carries with it the connotation that they were simultaneously endued with ability and strength. Now, sometimes you see the two words together in the New Testament, uh, ecstasy and dunamis, or uh, authority and power. In this case, it's kind of implied that when they're given this authority, they're also given the ability or the strength to do it. So now we're going to start landing this plane. This is what I think these texts can catch us into. And that is an imagination that goes like this, that the goal for us as followers of Jesus is to develop a character that is so Christ-like that God would empower us to do what we want to do. And I didn't misstate that, that God would empower us to do what he wants, that, that we would do what he wants us to do. But that we would develop a character so Christ-like that God can empower us to do what we want to do because we've become the kind of people who are fundamentally trustworthy to seek and do the good. You know, in, unless what you want is on the table with your relationship with God, it's not real. And until what you really want is on the table naked before God, it's, this isn't real. We, so many of us, get neurotic about seeking God's will and never stop to ask, what do I want? Really, no BS. No what I think I should say. 
But what do I actually want? What are my truest desires? And then now you can have a conversation with God because then we become trustworthy to do the good that we've been given to do. This is, this is the imagination that Paul has, for instance, in Ephesians 2.10, where he's trying to describe what is the purposeful human existence given that we have this new life in Christ. I mean, that's kind of what's going on in Ephesians 2. Given that we have this new life in Christ, what does this mean? Well, Paul says one of the things it means is we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But the formational aspect of this is we have to cooperate with God's purposes. And we do it by entering into apprenticeship with Jesus, learning to listen to him and walk with him and collaborate with him as he shows us what he's doing in any given situation. And I just wanna say to you, it's okay for you to go on that learning curve. It's okay for what you want to sometimes be wrong. Isn't that gonna like knock God off his throne? It's not gonna set back the cosmic plan of God. You'll just learn. Oh, I wanted this too fast. Or I wanted too much of this or too little of that. You'll just learn. Everybody look at me. You know what it means to be an apprentice? It means you don't know anything. It's okay. It's okay to give yourself to God as an apprentice and just work it out. It'll be all right. And then through the life of Christ being increasingly birthed in us, his love and his wisdom, his power, they began then to flow through us into the lives of those we touched. And this is so crucial for your imagination that God equipped us for this task by giving us a nature. I want you to try to get this. Your, your truest nature is not in Adam. Your truest nature is in the second person of the Trinity. So by nature, you were given the ability to function in a conscious personal relationship of interactive responsibility with God. That's your truest self. Now, I know it's fallen in Adam, and thank God for the second Adam, but your truest nature, if you ask about design, like you take your cell phone in your hand and then smash it, and now you got a smash cell phone, and you can deal with the effects of the fall. You can deal with the effects of the smashing. But it doesn't answer the question about design. What was the design? Well, the design was for a richly interactive um, relationship of co-responsibility with God, working with him. That's the design. That's your truest nature. And so when we do the kind of things we do in the spiritual practices of church, it's simply to reorient us towards that which is really real. I love the way Dallas Willard puts this. I don't remember where he wrote it. Um, that the, the organ, or we might say means, but he said organ, the organ of spiritual knowledge is obedience. Did you catch that? The organ of real deep, true spiritual knowledge is obedience. It's trying to live into this and failing sometimes and succeeding other times. But the organ of spiritual knowledge is not just our heads, it's obedience. And Dallas wrote, just as you open your eyes to see colors, you know the presence of the kingdom of God by obeying. You act on the knowledge you have. 
And in acting, you encounter the reality of the kingdom. Now, this is not a call for activism. Instead, it's a call for a deep inner alignment with God's purposes. The deeds of the kingdom arise naturally out of a certain quality of life. And as we cultivate that life in its wholeness by directing our lives into activities that empower the inner and outer person for God and through God, we actually become a different kind of people. And this is what Jesus knew. And this is why he so carefully taught on it. This is the reality of the kingdom in our midst. This is what it's meant to say and do to you. Come follow me and I'll teach you how to do it. That is the full flowering of the restoration that Nahum promised. So let's say this as we conclude. I mean, I can just imagine this morning that all of us here, including me, have felt overwhelmed by the darkness both within ourselves and in our world. And certainly Nahum lived in a dark time, a time in which the faithful few must have wondered how long they'd have to resist the cultural and spiritual compromise they saw around them. And I know for me, maybe for some of you, we sometimes find ourselves in the place where our will to do what's right weakens and we become discouraged with what we see in our lives and in the world around us. And this is where Nahum is genius for not only his day, but ours. And that is that Nahum reminds us of God's active hand. And though it's quiet and not noisy and gentle and not harsh most of the time, God's active hand is actually working at the center of human life, even in the darkest of times, to bring justice and restoration to the world. So I invite you now as we have a moment for quiet to bow your head and close your eyes and just wonder with me. And, and you go wherever the Spirit leads you here. Is there somewhere you notice God's active hand and maybe this morning you just want to be thankful? Or is there a circumstance in which you need God's active hand and thus you just need to pause and ask for it? Or maybe for others there's some place in your life in which you fear the absence of God's active hand and you need to talk to him about that. So maybe you see his active hand and want to be thankful. Maybe you need his active hand, need to just pray for it. Or there's some place maybe where you fear his absence and you need to talk to him about it.